0: Thank you.
1: Hello spookies and welcome to Rick or Treat HorrorCast hosted by yours ghoulie Ricky J. Duarte. My guests today are fellow horror podcast hosts. Jared Hornbeck is a teacher, writer, and independent producer based out of Brooklyn, New York. Steve Guntley is a writer, actor, and podcaster living in Austin, Texas, who can be heard on Cinema Arcade, Ultra 64, Wii Universe, and Talking Terrific Television combined jared and steve are the hosts of puppet masters castle freaks a podcast specializing in b-movie analysis particularly films produced by the iconic full moon features and empire international picture studios welcome to the show a couple of puppet masters
2: and castle freaks themselves jared and steve
0: thank you ricky
2: hello how's how's it going thank you for having us
0: yeah nice it's nice to be here i want to know who's who though like, I want to know which yeah. one of us is the puppet master and which one is the the castle freak. I think we have an idea in our head of who who they are, but I, it would be nice to hear an outside voice. So, yeah, I'm
2: curious if it aligns with my with my mental picture. Give or... us our titles, Ricky. Oh,
1: man. All right. Well, knowing you just, you know, just enough, I'm going to call Steve the puppet master and I'm going to call Jared the castle freak. That's fair. OK,
2: all right. Does I, was, that fit? I, I was truthfully <laughs> going to go the other way, but uh, I, I will I can see arguments on both sides
1: i i'm I'm gonna say there's a little bit of both in in each of you (laughs) inside all of us
2: are two wolves one is a puppet master the other is a castle (laughs) you guys
1: i'm so excited to have you on the show you had me as a guest last month to discuss
2: sure did witch house which is a hell of a movie and a hell of an episode May we again say, uh, we are so sorry. Um, yeah,
0: of all the movies I've ever seen in my life, Witch House is certainly one of them.
2: Yes, yes. The I part of the fun of our show is that sometimes people will just kind of roll the dice on a movie, you know, like, oh, this title sounds interesting or something like that. And sometimes it'll go great, and sometimes it uh turns out to be Witch House, which is a bummer. But I had a we had, regardless, we had a great time talking to you about that. Oh, we totally, had a great time yeah. having you on the episode.
1: I had a great time with you and it wasn't even a roll of the dice. I literally thought it was another movie. I thought it was Witchboard and I was so excited to talk about Witchboard and then it wasn't. But
0: all still. three of us thought it was Witchboard.
1: <laughs> yeah, we were all kind of hoping it was Witchboard. Yeah, yeah. It would such, have been better. Such a great time. Well, I have just a couple of questions about you guys. Uh, mm-hmm. Full Moon and Empire are like just on the outskirts of my area of expertise in horror. But I love and I appreciate the films by them that I've seen right tell Mm. me about kind of the genesis of puppet masters castle freaks and also how did you guys meet
0: yeah so steve and i have been podcasting together for a little while Uh, we were part of a, a sister show to the laser time podcast network called talking terrific television where we were doing a sopranos recap a while back uh we did that together and then while we were Podcasting when we were off mic, we would, or or we even even in some of the episodes, we would reference things. And they were kind of obscure, like kind of deep cuts. And and I would say, make a reference to something and be surprised that Steve knew it, or vice versa. And then in conversation, we were kind of just like, uh, somehow it came up about having read It Came from the Video Aisle, which is Dave Dave J's uh full moon history book. And I had read that book and, and Steve had mentioned he read the book. And I was like, holy shit, we must be the two people on the continental United States who wrote this book. <laughs> so we we talked about it and we were like, oh, it's so awesome. And then it was around the time that Charlie Bann's autobiography was coming out, uh, Confessions of a Puppet Master. And I sort of proposed to Steve jokingly, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, Steve, what did I say to you? <laughs>
2: It was something like, uh, "Oh, I guess we, I, all right. Well, we we've come across three of these movies randomly. I guess we've got to do a podcast about it now, or something like that." <laughs> it, I, it was something to that effect. Like it was a ha ha. I guess we got to do a podcast, and then we're just like, "Oh shit, the seed's been planted."
0: And then we looked. We were like, "Does this exist? Someone has to have done this." Like someone, and, and so I, I looked into it, and someone had started one, had had like done a couple of episodes and then stopped and the episodes were months and months old maybe even years old yeah and I was like okay so this isn't really current and then we we would have these conversations where we were like should we really do this like is there an audience for this and then then we would be like yeah it's a great premise it's awesome like let's do it let's do it And let's do it right and then uh, once we got started we were pretty reassured that it was the right decision to, to do yeah. it because people started coming out of the woodworks and being like telling us they were so glad that we were doing it and, and we learned that full moon and empire and then these bull movies are so beloved by so many people and they're often overlooked by critics or completely dismissed by you know cinema snobs or even just like most average moviegoers so the fact that we devote hours to even something like witch house <laughs> i think people really seem to enjoy
1: it's terrific it's opened my eyes i listen every week every episode it's opened my eyes to a bunch of films that i have not been able to see like i said you know this is not an area of my horror uh knowledge so we've also had some guests in common actually kevin lane was on your show he and i collaborate yeah. every once in a while oh, we yeah. have a collab, a collab coming up and then brian w smith is a very good friend of mine Oh, love awesome. brian yeah we yeah. Like love brian kevin lot,
0: too yeah. they're yeah. both yeah. they're
2: both terrific yeah. yeah. And it's, it's been fun for us too. I mean, you mentioned it's kind of outside of your area of expertise. Like, honestly for us, largely that's also true. Like there's a large number of these full moon movies and these empire movies that we haven't seen. So many of these are being discovered for the first time. And I think we're just kind of enjoying uh, trying to find the, the the value in these kind of trashy movies that have sort of been lost through time. And I think we do, you know, I think we do find a good deal of, a good deal to recommend in a lot of these movies
0: it's really interesting to me that like half the fan base also seems kind of split where it's like people who you know listened to the show on a recommendation or or something who maybe aren't as schooled in full moon and empire stuff but then there's also a lot of people who grew up with the movies and so we've approached it from the point of view of like i've seen a number of them I've seen more more than Steve to start, but yeah. by no means would I ever say that I'm familiar with the entire catalog. So the fun of it for us, I think, is it works both ways. It's like we get to revisit an absolute classic like a From Beyond, which gives us an excuse to watch and talk about it. But then we get to to discover a classic like Blood Dolls, which neither of us had seen or Shrunken Heads where we kind of walked away and we're like, man, this is this is awesome. Like I I'm so annoyed it took me this many years of my life to discover this thing. And so I, it, it's nice. We get to kind of have it both ways where we get to discover new stuff and and then revisit things that we like. And I, I like to think the fans get the same thing. Like they some of them are getting to hear somebody talk about a nostalgic property that's often overlooked and other people get to hear about something that sounds like a wild idea on paper and then they have mm-hmm. a new fun movie to go seek out.
1: Totally. And you guys are a a complete blast to listen to. You have like great rapport. You are funny and knowledgeable. You're very good at kind of piggybacking on the other's idea. And it's a it's a really it's just a it's a great fucking podcast.
0: Great job, guys. Thanks so much. Can you just compliment us for the next 90 minutes? Can that be what this show is? That's all I
1: had. I feel like, uh, oh, sorry, I blew the wad all up front. (laughs) Just kidding. You guys are great. Again, I'm I'm so happy to have you here on the podcast to talk about this film. You're welcome. Listen, before we get to the film, I Mm -hmm. love every episode to give some recommendations about recent horror that we've consumed—films or books, video games, uh, anything. So, uh, Jared, what have you been checking out lately?
0: Okay, so what I'm trying to think about what I've been checking out lately. Uh, I've actually been admittedly kind of slow in terms of seeing new things. I do feel like 95% of the content that I've consumed in the last like 8 months has been Full Moon <laughs> features yeah. and stuff. So it's been stuff generally related to the show. I mean, I don't there's some non-horror stuff. I went to see a um a 35 millimeter screening of Godfather Part 2 recently cool. in the theater which was amazing. Um, so I'm trying to think of like horror related stuff, like what I've watched that I've liked lately. Uh, I, I went to see, I went to some shutter showcases. Um, oh, you know what I'll use this opportunity for to plug, uh, my friends, Jen Wexler and Sean Redlitz movie, the sacrifice game, cool, which is on shutter right now. Um, it's, it's so much fun. It's a movie that takes place on Christmas, uh, in 1971 about, a couple of young girls at an all girl school who don't have family and are are left at the school over Christmas break and uh, some killers who are sort of designed after the Manson family uh, are going around the town killing people and they stumble upon this uh, mostly abandoned school and there's some slasher stuff, some occult stuff, some great 70s period things and uh, I saw it had a couple screenings uh when it played here in New York to open and now it's on shutter it, it'll, it 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 I believe it premiered on shutter like December 8th maybe and I it's doing really well a lot of people had it on their year-end lists in their short lists of favorite movies of the year. So I haven't seen a lot of, other, I mean, what am I going to plug exorcist believer? No, thank you. No, like <laughs> i <I'm, laughs> so sacrifice game. If you want to see a, a good movie about the occult and uh, demons and stuff, go watch, watch sacrifice game on shutter. Nice. It's I'm on not my paid by shutter. I promise.
1: Yeah. Right. It's on my queue. I was about to press play and then my stupid fucking neighbors, they blast music. And it was a movie that I didn't want to have to sit through their fucking, you know, party to try yeah. to enjoy so i I, mm. I shelved it i'm coming to it soon i cannot wait yeah i've heard nothing but great things about it
0: yeah it's it's super fun it, it did really well it closed brooklyn horror fest here which was a big deal so jen and sean and heather buckley the producer and some of the actors they uh did q and a's and stuff and it was just really fun to to be out of an event like that with people who you know and
2: support and so it was, it was really great but i think that's about it for me what about you steve Uh, For me, yeah, I'm in a similar boat where I've been, a lot of the movies I've been watching lately have just been for various podcast pursuits, so uh, (laughs) I I haven't gotten to see too much new horror lately, but uh, you threw out video games, so I'm a video game guy, I'll have to offer those up. Uh, I just recently completed the Resident Evil 4 remake that they made for PS5 just last year and really, really got into that. I was always a little lukewarm on that game, but whatever reason, this new one really clicked with me. It's it's uh, rebuilt enough that it's still going to surprise you if you're a fan of the original game, but uh, there, there's there's plenty of new stuff and plenty of familiar things. It put me on a Resident Evil kick, so I just immediately booted up Resident Evil 3 remake, and I'm playing that now, too. So I'm working my way backwards through the Resident Evil series again. Um, yeah, I think that's about it for me. I did watch Babe, Pig, in the City last night again, and that's surprisingly horrific, but a uh, wonderful <laughs> movie, so I'll throw that <laughs> one out there.
1: Such a different film than Babe. Babe makes me cry at the end every time. And then Babe Pig in the City was like a, a real change in tone
2: and direction for the franchise. Really tortures a lot of dogs in that movie. Like, yeah. It's really very upsetting. As a dog owner, it's difficult to watch all these dogs getting mutilated in this oh, movie. No. <laughs> this G rated movie for this children. That's
1: hysterical. My recommendation is so for New Year's, a goal of mine that I set was to become an avid reader again. I used to be and then just stopped. And so now what is today? We're recording on January 12th, not even halfway through. And I've already read three books. So I've already read more books. More books than I read last year. So I'm really proud of myself. But Good for you. uh, So I just finished a book called The White Bishop. Friend of the pod, Brandon Perez-Sanchez, is one of the co-writers on it. He's part of the Monster Makeup Productions crew who did Death Drop Gorgeous and St. Drogo,
2: Mm, um, which I
1: just saw the New York premiere screening of. I can't recommend it enough. So I finished that book, and now I have started uh, Imagica. By Clive Barker and this is ooh, a book that ooh. I read a decade ago it is my favorite Clive Barker it is an epic it's over a thousand pages long I have it like broken down into two paperback volumes so it's less imposing but it's a real journey I think it's some of his best writing I think it is a story that is prime for like a really good television series take you know like give it like two seasons and, and tell this story it's I just love him, man. Like he's so good at world building and creating creatures, you know, and, yeah. um, and, and showcasing the horrors
2: of humanity as well. He really strides a line, like with a couple of Barkers that I've written, like if, if it was some author with slightly less control of, t- it would be insufferable. But, like, he finds the right note. He hits all these gothic beats, like, so perfectly. It's got this very florid writing. And, yeah, he's got this really vivid, like, Lovecraftian kind of imagination that I love. Uh, yeah, so i, I got to check that one out. I haven't read that book.
0: Yeah, it's definitely. funny, Ricky. At no point during you you saying like what what stuff have we been like consuming lately? Did I even think of books, which is a problem. <laughs> and I I also am an avid reader. During the school year, I don't get to read quite as much, so I tend to veer more into nonfiction because I find it a lot easier. I can jump around chapters. I can decide what thing I'm reading about, which which aspect of it is most important, and I tend to save. Fiction and novels for the summer by my, my beach reads, you know, I usually br- have about 10 books for the summer and I I bring them to the beach and wherever else with me. But uh, I did I buy I haven't read it yet. But I did just get this beautiful, huge hardcover book. I mean, this thing weighs like 45 pounds. And it's called, uh, beyond terror, the films of Lucio Fulci. Nice. And it's just all Fulci. It's gorgeous, gorgeous photographs, illustrations in it. And, uh, I also got, which I haven't read yet. This book called, uh, Bronson is loose, which is about the making of all the death wish movies, which I'm going to start reading soon. And then actually for the show, uh, if you listen to the Psychos in Love episode that we released, uh, Matt Desiderio, who works with Forbidden Planet, he reco- he had mentioned the Empire of the Bees book, which is the sort of full moon features history came from the video aisle, but for Empire, which cool. I had didn't even know it existed because it was out of print. And i I happened to follow one on eBay that dropped significantly in price probably still more than i should pay for a book but it dropped a good amount Mm -hmm. so i snatched up a copy of that and i got it it was delivered got delivered to me right before the holiday break and so i i read that was probably the last thing of 2023 that i read but it's been great because now i have a little bit more insight to take into the empire movies as we record about them but yeah, I'm like, I wasn't, I was thinking with as far as movies, it's been so much full moon stuff and stuff for the show, but books. Yeah, books. I love books. Like, Go how want you hear, hear more yeah. about books. I'm keeping, so
1: like my, my in hand, like holding a physical book, I'm focusing on fiction and then audible. I'm focusing on nonfiction. Mm. I'm currently listening to to, uh, men, women and chainsaws by Carol J. Clover, which has been recommended to me for years. It's about gender roles in horror, specifically slashers, occult and uh, possession films and rape revenge as well. And you know, this came out in I think 91 and it coined the phrase final girl, like this woman created the phrase final girl. Um, it's excellent. It's uh, I'm finding it to be maybe a hair repetitive, but I'm still blown away with it. I would love because it's so focused on the binary of gender being 1991. Yeah. I would yeah. love like a, a second edition, an updated version. That being said, in slasher films in particular uh, gender is really showcased in the binary anyway there's not mm-hmm. a lot of gray area in character development or anything so it, it's not you know it's still fitting uh highly sure. recommend this book i, I really uh, it's brilliant it's excellent awesome yeah. all right fellas cool. well we came here to talk about a film uh what do you say we go rick or treating
2: let's go
0: let's do it
1: Today we are talking about a slasher film that goes under the radar, unfortunately. Uh, It's forgotten, but it is loved and adored by the people who know it. We're talking about 1981's The Prowler. Fellas, uh, you selected this film. Why did you pick this
0: one? I, I looked at the list of movies and a lot of really great choices on there. Too many, actually, which is probably what made me look outside the list. Because sometimes it's like if you if you're looking if you're staring down a list of potential ones to talk about you're going to constantly second guess yourself and change your mind but what struck me was you had all these 80s slashers on there which speaking for myself is sort of has always kind of been my favorite of the subgenre of horror movies it's the one that I watched the most from when I was young and so I, I was looking at it and I saw you know a, a bunch of 80s slashers and I I, I went oh, did, is the Prowler on there? And then I scrolled back up and the Prowler wasn't on there. And then I, I looked back to see if it was something you covered. And then, and then I brought it up to you and I said, oh, how, what about the Prowler? Have you ever done, were you planning on doing the Prowler? And then when you said that you hadn't actually seen it, I was kind of like, oh, well, this might be a good opportunity to watch it for the first time uh, for, for this, you know, rather than, than putting it off. And so I'm glad that we were able to get it onto the list because- yeah, this is an overlooked movie in some ways. I mean, it's it's less overlooked now. It's definitely been highly reappraised over the years. But this was one that in '81 when it was released, basically disappeared. I mean, had didn't make any money. Uh, didn't this you was know, it, the
1: same year as Halloween Two, Friday the Thirteenth Two, Happy Birthday to Me, My Bloody Valentine, and The Burning. Like this was a fucking incredible year for slashers. Yeah, this is
0: the year of the slasher. Like yeah. 1981 is, I think, the single greatest slasher year. When I say greatest, I mean pejorative. Like in the in the way of like there were just one coming out three times a week. It seems like that year. I mean, a varying quality, but a lot of those titles you said and you said you mentioned My Bloody Valentine, which you and I spoke about about how that was one that you've covered and that you loved. Uh, There's a lot of similarities between that movie and this movie. Yeah, I I almost feel like you could kind of confuse scenes from the two of them that don't involve the killers themselves.
1: Well, it's interesting because My Bloody Valentine, which I adore, it is one of my absolute favorites. A lot of those uh, kill scenes were cut and that footage is lost. Mm -hmm. And so it's not it doesn't go as far as I feel like it could. I would love to see that lost footage. This film goes for it in these kills which I can't wait to talk about them Tom Savini outdid himself in this film um so yeah I feel like it kind of um in a weird way fills in some of the holes that my bloody valentine leaves me wanting but I feel like I like the plot and characters of my bloody valentine much much more
2: that's sort of where i come down with it like i i was excited to talk about this not because this is necessarily a movie that i love i only saw it the first time like maybe two or three years ago mm-hmm. but because a yeah i agree that it is kind of not talked about enough and b i think it features some of the best effects work by one of the best effects artists of all time. And the fact that like kind of one of the best, the jewels of his resume is sort of buried in this movie. Yeah, And so I think it's worth seeking out just for that. I mean, the kill scenes in this movie are legendary and grotesque and some of the most realistic and upsetting gore that he's ever done. Uh, And I think it's worth watching for that.
1: It takes a lot to surprise me. And particularly uh, the, the bayonet through the head scene blew me away and is perhaps now one of my absolute favorite kills in any movie of all time. Uh, We'll get to it. We'll talk about it.
0: I I also agree that I I mean, I love my bloody Valentine as well. And I put them very close together. What that movie has going for it that this one doesn't is the ballad of Harry Warden. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This needed a theme song. This needed a a closing credits little. uh, A rose for Rosemary, the theme song. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, I feel like you need to write that song now. (laughs) I threatened for a while to do a one man show like a cabaret where I just sang theme songs written for '80s slasher movies. But uh, oh, my God, there's a great
2: one for Terror Vision. Yeah, check that one out.
0: Hey, I'm close by Ricky. I'm close by. I'll be there. Make it happen. All right, fine. I will. I want to see this. The film was made on a budget of about a million
1: dollars. It did. It brought in less than a million. I read this was the 135th most successful film of 1981. Did not do super well. It was re-released three years later in the state of South Carolina without permission under the title, The Pitchfork Murders. And to my understanding, no one knows who released it or how or why or what kind of money that might have brought in
2: from what i understand the pitchfork murders is the title that they gave this movie over in europe in a copy that they literally cut all of the kills out of the movie like it it was because germans were uh, germans in particular were very uh, uh strict on censorship with uh, gore and violence in movies so they cut out all of those scenes which kind of makes me think like what 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 is the purpose of, of this movie if you don't have any of those scenes at all because like you said the the characters here are not terribly compelling you know yeah. and the the story overall is not doesn't really grab me but you need those gore scenes like as like, exploitative and gross as they can be you need them in there
1: you absolutely do. As I was writing my synopsis of this film, I found myself struggling to figure out which pieces of this plot were worth including because there's so much that's just not worth in- not worth talking about. <laughs> so I without mean, those,
2: I, yeah, yeah, I, I would say that the overall thing to, that this movie does, story wise, that I think is cool is the use of a troubled veteran mm-hmm. as a villain, spe- specifically a World War II veteran. You know because it's kind of acknowledging uh PTSD or Shell Shock as they would have called it around that time as like a real thing when a lot of people were sort of burying that story and just kind of focusing on the rah-rah hoo elements of the victorious World War II. So it's kind of an interesting uh spin to put on this as a character. It makes for a more compelling villain and it makes for you know, thematically, I think. I don't think Joseph uh, Zito was really uh, thinking along those lines when he's making this movie. I think I imagine they just had the gear around, you know, and it's just like, all right, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. this on him. Let's see what he looks like. But it does kind of uh, consciously or unconsciously make for an interesting theme.
0: Just to make one, one small correction to, it was released as pitchfork massacre. Okay. And the reason I always think that's funny is because whoever re-released the movie Uh, without permission at that time put it up put up a poster for it with a tagline that says um, don't need a chainsaw to have a massacre which i think is so funny because it's almost verbatim the tagline to the movie pieces yeah oh which was you don't have to go to texas to have a massacre uh, which that movie also has two taglines. the the uh, on the very top is that you don't have to go to Texas for a massacre, for a chainsaw massacre. And then at the very bottom, under the name Pieces, it just says it's exactly, it's exactly what, what you, you think, think it, it is. It is.
1: <laughs>
2: that's a great tagline.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it that's a great movie too. Uh, I need to yeah. get that one on the podcast for sure. Uh, oh, as yeah. you mentioned, film is directed by Joseph Zito, who would go on to direct Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter, the fourth mm-hmm. installment in that series. Written by Glenn Leopold and Neil F. Barbera, who I looked into it. They went on to write mostly for cartoons and animated series, including like Tom and Jerry
2: and Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Well, Neil F. Barbera is the son of Joseph Barbera. I literally just put that together in my head. Wow. Yeah. yeah, This is a part of the Scooby-Doo empire. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) As we mentioned, special effects by Tom Savini. He says this is his best work. I think this is his best work. I'm inclined to
0: agree with him. (laughs)
1: God, it doesn't get any better than this. It it looks better than today's slasher films, which are relying on CGI for, you know, blades going through heads and for blood splattering. And it's just like he, what he accomplished practically in this film is mind blowing to me. And the fact that the film goes without the praise that it deserves for that is also, you know, pretty mind blowing.
0: I think that Jason Voorhees machete in the head, death and Friday the 13th 4 is a really impressive yeah. effect and probably as a single effect ranks up there among the best things he did. But like pound for pound, when you compare this movie, each individual kill in this movie with the individual kills in Friday the 13th 4, as much as I love Friday the 13th 4, it does not. I mean, but also that was Paramount. That was the MPAA be, being really cautious about what they would let slip in a movie like that, even though they did relax their standards a little bit for part four because it was advertised as being the final chapter so they were just kind of like fine this is the last one okay we'll be a little bit more lenient we'll allow it. um right and so they were a little bit more lenient with it but not anywhere near the degree to this this movie cuts back to what i love so much about these death scenes is that the initial like impolation happens uh. and then you'll see to get a reaction shot which is where where a lot of movies would cut mm-hmm. And then it goes back and the gore effect is slightly magnified and then it cuts again. And then it cuts back again for like a third time where there, it takes it to the the next level that you're just not used to seeing uh, the girl uh, in the pool with yeah. the machete with, in, in her neck is like one of my all time favorite slasher moments. And, and the, uh what do you is there and I, i'm mad at myself for forgetting this word but like what would you call actually the the act of what happens to the woman with the pitchfork in the shower it has a name yeah,
2: she's i mean impaled, impaled, right? impaled Yeah. it's she just was, impaled
0: okay i thought there was yeah, like another so. word for it but but that one too just seeing it so menacingly like just just keep getting pushed further and further up uh, and then, like you said, the bayonet in the head, just when those eyeballs roll back white, it is one, one of like the most gasp. amazing yeah. shots. Like just the thought to keep that effect going and to add that layer yeah. to it. Like that's just, not only is it well executed for lack of a better word, pun intended, I suppose. <laughs> its It's also just an interesting creative addition to it. Because yeah. I don't think anybody's thinking what's going to happen to this guy's eyes because of this. But then when it happens, it's like, oh yeah, like that's awesome.
1: I made an audible, like, like not even a gasp. It was like a guffaw. I could not, I just wasn't expecting it. And it blew, I mean, the whole sequence is just upsetting. What I love about the kills in this film. So I'm a massive John Carpenter fan as we all Mm -hmm. are. And his kills are very like struggle, 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 struggle. Now it's over. And now we're kind of left in a moment of like, um. What did What did I just see? Someone just got killed. These the the kill goes on, and then just like you said, we see the person die. We see that final breath. We see their eyes like die, and uh, it, it's we. It's not a they, these films. These kills are filmed in a way that I don't think we see very often.
2: No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, take the shower. I mean, we're jumping around a little bit, but like you mentioned, the shower, uh, uh pitchfork bit. You know, it's like any other movie this would just be a gratuitous excuse to show a naked young woman in the shower in this case it is to really drive home how good these effects are because mm-hmm. there is no shirt there is no fabric there's nothing that she could be wearing that's obscuring like where these blades are going she feels very very vulnerable and you really feel the impact of that kill in particular like you know it's not just tossed off to be titillation it's uh, yeah. it's genuinely upsetting
1: For these kill scenes, Tom Savini is the one who's executing them. He's the one in the costume doing the kills. And then throughout the rest of the film, to my understanding, Joseph Zito, the director himself, put on the costume and walked around wearing it. And then at the very end, when the killer is revealed, obviously, it's a different actor uh, wearing the costume. But yeah, Tom, because he knew how to do these safely, was the one who ended up executing them we have a score by richard einhorn and i look i i like the score in this film it really works until it doesn't the flowery music Uh. at the very end drives me insane but he did the music for shockwaves and don't go in the house eyes of a stranger dead of winter and blood range like this guy has a resume yeah and beautiful cinematography by raul lomas who also did children of the corn and then would go on to do friday the 13th part four with zito uh this film looks a lot better
2: than it is i think (laughs) really benefits in the same way of uh, my bloody valentine uh, of of having a non-traditional kind of setting for a Mm -hmm. horror movie like Mm -hmm. a seaside community is kind of not the typical set for a slasher movie, it's usually like some kind of anonymous, like middle America mm-hmm. place, you know, but but this and my bloody Valentine which is set in a mining town, you know, the, those are distinctive. That's like, it gives it a little bit of texture, I think
0: totally agree with you, Steve. And I think that that's another reason why I really enjoy the movie Dead and Buried
2: yes yeah because that's that's
0: another one of those like kind of remote location ones i I think you're absolutely right it gives it a, a slightly different uh isolated location i know you know if you're in the middle of the woods and there's a slasher out on the prowl like yeah you're in an isolated location maybe but there's something about these these kind of small fringe towns that that i really enjoy i also think it's an interesting creative choice uh in terms of the cinematography to, to shoot a lot of this with this very stylized romantic lighting mm. because I think it, it makes you, it, it kind of keeps you, like you know the movie switches from 1945 to present day, but it keeps this kind of sheen on the film that that gives it sort of this, it, it, this is now 1980 when this is being made and taking place, but it also could st- be 1945 it almost transcends kind of like uh there's nothing in inherently 1980 about when it cuts to present day other than maybe some of the hairstyles and and fashions and Mm -hmm. stuff and because they're getting ready for the dance very early in the film and a lot of the film takes place at the dance you don't get a lot of casual 1980 fashion and so i think they, they they're able to make this movie feel sort of glamorous in a way that that doesn't have it um feel too um uh, how should i say this like in juxtaposition to the 1945 stuff it doesn't come out and feel too conflicting like it kind of flows and i think that's a that's a creative choice it almost is like there's like a a film like a a, like a i don't want to say soap opera lighting because i don't think that's accurate but it is definitely lightly romantically lit for a lot of it and yeah it feels uh, feels
2: kind of gloss like a like a Hollywood melodrama, you know, yeah, like like a like a Douglas Sirk in color or something like that, yeah, right. Yeah, it's got some, that kind of vibe to it.
1: Zito, as he read the screenplay, felt that it had a very dreamlike quality, the the script, mm-hmm. and so he translated that into his direction of the film. And yeah, I think it translates exactly how you guys are are describing it. We have a cast in this film of people who call themselves actors. We have Pam, our lead, played by Vicki Dawson. Deputy Mark London is Christopher Goutman. He went on to be a soap actor. Major Chatham is Lawrence Tierney, a recognized character actor. Yeah. What
0: a weird, uh, in, in, yeah. The fact that Lawrence Tierney is included in this movie is is so strange and, and given and fun. nothing
1: to do, absolutely yeah. nothing to do. Sheriff Fraser is Farley Granger. He oh, was yeah. in Strangers on a Train and Rope. Like this yeah. guy mm-hmm. worked with Hitchcock.
2: Yeah, he sure was. Yeah, he, he's a great little character actor back in his day. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and then we have an assortment of teenagers who this. My first episode ever was my um was happy birthday to me. And Mm -hmm. there were so many characters who you can't keep track of whose name is who and they just don't matter anyway. And I I found myself struggling to keep up with who was who in this film. I I feel like I nailed it, but we'll go through them (laughs) as we get through the plot of this movie. Why don't we talk about the plot of The Prowler? Let's do it. it. So we open on a wartime film, uh, black and white, like you would see old timey at the movies, uh, telling about the Queen Mary ship returning with 15,000 vets home from World War II. And we see vets kissing ladies in the street. And it it does take a moment to mention the psychological effects that these men have gone through. So yeah, Steve, like you mentioned, the PTSD involved in this film, they do acknowledge it. I do wish maybe they went a little further with it. Yeah. It Me was too. 1981, that was never gonna, you know, it wasn't on their mind. And then also mentions that some of these men were recipients of Dear John letters. And uh, it finishes with let dancing replace marching. And then it's <laughs> it reminds us to buy that extra war bond today because
2: that was a thing we cut that to... was great I thought that opening video was really well produced it's like did that, not expect I really it. felt like a newsreel yeah. yeah watch
0: out Utica Springfield's a city on the grow <laughs> like I, I I like the newsreel it's such a fun yeah. little narrative device and and way to introduce the themes of this movie really early on and such a like such a jarring way to start the movie like to someone who's never seen the movie i I don't put it past a person to have the newsreel start playing and be like did i put the wrong that's exactly what happened to me that's exactly (laughs) what
1: happened to (laughs) me yeah yeah
0: uh they arrived
1: they i've been on the queen mary ship it's in california it's haunted um my mom says that she felt something but i don't believe her so (laughs) (laughs) we cut immediately to a dear john letter from March twelfth, nineteen forty four, and it is read aloud as we look at this cursive text, and it just says things like, "I can't wait for you any longer. I promised to wait. I tried, but it's so much longer than we expected. And you know, I, I know I said I loved you, but I'm young and I have to live my life now. I hope you don't hate me, uh, and perhaps one day we can be friends again. Sincerely, Rosemary." And there is a little red rose drawn uh, in that signature of the name Rosemary. I'm just going to throw it out there. The confusion of Rose versus Rosemary versus Francis threw me off the first time that I watched this film. And I didn't catch, like, I didn't, I couldn't figure out what was, that it was all the same person until I revisited.
0: Yeah. And this movie also is uh, another alternate title it had was Rosemary's Killer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they really lean hard into the identity thing here, but it is a little—it is a little bit confusing putting those pieces together. I—I I, I will say, it could be made a, a little bit more clear. It for also
1: sure. irks me that Rosemary is an herb, and yet she goes by Rose for short, and roses are used as like a motif throughout this film. It
0: just call her Rose. Like, don't give yep. me the rosemary. No, but Ricky, see that would be on the nose. Okay, rosemary. I mean, now it's we're nuanced. thinking. You know? It's nuanced. Yes, yeah, nuanced. That,
2: <laughs> so, I mean, I think that that a hotel would smell better if it was all rosemary everywhere. For sure, that's a nice, bright, fresh, savory smell.
1: Now, from this Dear John letter, we see Avalon Bay, California. It's June 28th, 1945, and it's the night of the graduation day dance. And this venue is decked out. It's a massive, beautiful white building, and there's uh, strands of white lights. It's it's very pretty. A lot of war vets arrive with their dates, young men and women. They borrowed these cars from a collector. They didn't have the budget to, like, you know, get their hands on
0: them. And costumes were borrowed from a warehouse. But they look good. They're legit. Yeah, I was going to say that's like a good way. That's that's how you do it. I mean, if you want to make if you don't have a lot of money, you want to make period piece work. I was going to say for keeping this at a a roughly one million dollar budget, I'm Mm -hmm. sure, you know, there isn't a continuity expert on set who's making sure that everything is period appropriate, but like it looks convincing. And I think that's cool that they were able to at least, you know, get their hands on some of this period stuff to to enhance it so the movie doesn't feel ultra cheap.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, inside there are a couple swing dancing. There's a big bandstand playing Glenn Miller. I didn't know Glenn Miller had died in the war, but they talk about that. And there are Mm -hmm. red, white, and blue streamers all over the place. One of the couples decides to go out to the point and uh, the guy, Roy, boasts about how much money he has and he's pushing for them to have sex as they drive away. They pull up to the point and it is a gazebo at the end of a dock decorated with strings of lights. And this couple has some drinks and they head to the end of the dock. They start necking and we see a pair of combat boots approaching. This figure cuts the string of lights with a hunting knife and then is seen wielding a pitchfork. Uh, Now the gal protests, fooling around, but Roy persists. They start making out. And then the killer drives this pitchfork into Roy's back and digs it into the woman's chest with his foot and uh, places a red rose
2: in her dead hand. The foot in particular was an extra detail because you could really feel like the heft and the weight of both of those people. And, you know, like Jared was saying, the cutting back and forth and like showing the reaction shots and everything like that really made the drove this home. And I'm just like, this is the moment where this movie kind of had me perk up and just like, oh, shit. okay, yeah, we're in for something. Yeah,
0: Yeah. because if you look at Friday the 13th 2, which takes its like double impaling from Bay of Blood or Twitch of the Death Nerve where they you know he puts the spear down through the two people I mean the MPAA packed up Friday the 13th part two to shreds and you were talking before about how you would love to see my bloody Valentine I would love that too I love I wish there was a way we could see the true Friday the 13th two on on uncut because has some of my favorite setups and then the kills ultimately are a little lacking because they were Um, They were tampered with so much, but it's the in most movies, you would get that cutaway to a reaction shot. Here you get the killer stepping on the pitchfork and pushing it with their foot in and you're watching it go deeper and deeper in. And it's just such an impressive effect. Like it just you know, it's like I think this is the kind of thing that separates us from like normal people where it's like. Someone will watch something like this and be like, "Oh, this is revolting or 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 gross." And and we're watching it and we perk up and our eyes widen because I think you know we're we're looking at it and we're we're thinking about how graphic and grotesque it is on one hand, but at the same time we're we're thinking about like what a feat of effects work we're we're watching take place, And, and I think like that's just something that's so enjoyable about this movie, and I'm glad Ricky. Having suggested the movie for this show to know beforehand, I mean, we obviously haven't gotten through all the kills and the plot yet, but I'm glad to know that these affected you because I was, I was hoping I was saying he's, uh, he's in for a treat. if Yeah, he, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah big time, uh, big surprise and, and definitely grabbed my attention. From this sequence, we cut to the title card, The Prowler, and now it is Avalon Bay, June 28th of 1980. I have to say, I did expect the whole film to take place in 1945. It was a little—it was a surprise to me to jump up 35 years. They are preparing for the graduation dance, and we meet Deputy Mark London, who is flirting with a couple of female students. He's giving them tips on hanging the banner for the dance, and he's approached by Pam, our lead. And there's some terrible flirting dialogue going on, uh, but they agree <laughs> to go get lunch together. And London remarks that he has to stop by the office first or the sheriff will kill him.
2: Yeah, that, that deputy's really kind of throwing it around, too. He's just kind of flirting at everybody, you know, and I, I say flirting at them. You know, he's not really <laughs> there's not a whole lot of engagement here, but he's just putting it down hard. For sure. And uh, just telling us that the sheriff is going to kill him right off the bat is
0: uh,
1: I didn't pick up on it until the
0: second yeah. time I saw it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a little Easter egg that you yeah. don't really know
1: about. At the police office, Pam is talking to Sheriff Fraser and says that there hasn't been a graduation day dance since 1945 because Major Chatham wouldn't allow it. Very my bloody Valentine. No, this is the first dance since the murders. Mm-hmm. She feels sorry for Major Chatham because he's all alone in that big house so close to where they found his daughter and that boy. Now, Sheriff Fraser tells her and London that the state police called about an hour ago and said somebody robbed a market up by Columbus, cut some kid up and stole his car and they think he might be headed this way. This is a whole red herring that for me does not serve the plot. I first off, it's a sequence I wish we got to see instead of we were told about it. And then second, it really kind of doesn't take us anywhere. Yeah and despite this, the sheriff still has plans to leave town um, to go fishing but he trusts Deputy London and says he can handle anything that might come along.
0: Mm. Anything. <laughs> Again, it's like when, when you, when you say it out loud, it's like, okay, so this guy's obviously the killer, right? Like, yeah,
2: <laughs> it also adheres to the old movie rule of like, who's the biggest name. That's like not your lead or second lead in the cast. That's probably sure. him. Yeah. yeah.
0: Right. Like why cast Farley Granger, why make that connection? Although Steve and I talked on an episode of our own show recently about how a lot of uh, actors who were known for doing, uh, working with horror directors or horror movies in like the 40s and 50s would all of a sudden show up in these small character roles in in movies in the 80s. Like we mentioned Glenn Ford and we mentioned Rory Calhoun and, uh, you know, Farley Granger is in this one. And uh, so it's, it's nice. It is nice to see these people show up in a movie so it, it one on one hand you're kind of like well maybe in 1980 like you know farley granger hadn't worked for a while and was looking for a quick paycheck but by the same token the hitchcock connection being there it's kind of like yeah, why is this guy here like, yeah. he, really, he really should be more consequential to what's going on same thing with i, I mean but that i guess that works as a red herring then for lawrence tierney because i yeah. think you have the same thought of like mm-hmm. lawrence tierney is in this movie it's Probably for a reason. So it's like he was just, you know, these are the... Th- I mean, we need a Lawrence Tierney type to play this old curmudgeon. But I, apparently he was less curmudgeonly and more psychotic.
2: Yeah, he's, he's, good, he's good visual shorthand just because he's mm. so uh, naturally menacing and just mm-hmm. in real life was a very intimidating person. So I think he's going to put up those flags for you just being in the movie.
0: Yeah, he's a, a menacing dude. And it's unfortunate that he's wheelchair bound and sort of out of the picture for most of this movie
1: wasted in the film for sure at lunch Pam tells London that she hopes he can come by the dance a little later she asks if he thinks the guy who robbed that store might come here but London assures her that the state police are going to get him Uh, but she tells him to be careful now Sheriff Frazier gets off the phone with the state police assures them that London can handle anything and tells London that the biggest problem he'll have tonight are those kids from the dance running wild but remember, there are still some people around here that won't put up with that kind of thing. And he gets really serious when he says that mm-hmm. on his way out of town. Fraser stops by the market to pick up some shaving cream and deodorants. And oh, my God, the guy behind the counter says deodorant. No sweat. You get it. And it's such boomer humor. It's right. Dry- <laughs> it's just bad. Um, but this- <laughs> so I mentioned I also hate my
0: wife. Yeah. This, <laughs> take my wife, please. This
1: clerk and another guy who works there who might be mentally handicapped serve as a couple of other red herrings. They may be brothers. I'm not quite sure, but it it I'm not going to call it completely inconsequential to the plot. It's just, you know, giving us people who could be suspects to be in a murder.
2: Yeah. And I appreciate it at least that we had some like interesting side characters here to, uh, to get invested in because- i did still i'm still having the problem of like not remembering which character is which and which Mm -hmm. actor is which is uh, for our our uh, stable of heroes you know they're they're a pretty uniquely bland group
1: yeah for (laughs) sure these guys are a lot more interesting yeah
2: Yeah,
0: no the the character i believe his name is like otis the character in in the auto yeah in the deputy's office i mean that guy is he's kind of like a prototype of harlan williams sure harlan williams was was a person that people knew about <laughs> yeah. i kept thinking that when i was when i was seeing him but yeah i think our our, our leads here are are less um quirky and memorable and a little bit more nondescript
1: yeah big
0: time. although i do think it's interesting that the the woman who plays the lead like i mean i i say the lead but like the the number one final girl in, in this movie pam uh the actress vicki dawson she was only 19 when they were making this movie which i think is interesting because usually it's the reverse that happens usually you have like a 28 year old right playing a teenager here you have a college dance where and it's a graduation dance so we're assuming that they're all 22 years old or so yeah and she's being played by a 19 year old i, I think probably some of the other actors were slightly older but she was uh younger than a college Senior would have been at that time and I I think that's interesting and I also feel like it's so hard to judge when you watch some of these older movies based on like hairstyles and clothing like how old people are because you're like that's got to be a 30 year old and then you look and they're like 19 and it's like
1: man Yeah.
0: She does read
1: older. Like I didn't realize she was 19, but she has, She, I'm not going to say she carries a maturity, but you know, she is clearly the grounded level-headed one of this group. And she, uh, yeah, she reads, she reads age appropriate, even with those bangs that age her. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of her bangs, now the sheriff has left town. Pam gets to her dorm where her friends are getting ready and they have girly dialogue about boys and Weed, and then, uh, but Pam is not quite as excited as the other two. Sherry, her friend, reminds her that it's everyone's last night together. Uh, But Pam is worried about London and that guy who stabbed someone in Columbus. And Sherry remarks that she wishes that the sheriff was here. Now we cut to someone in black leather gloves lacing up their combat boots. I always bring up the black leather gloves because it's such a trope, you know, stemming from Giallo films Mm -hmm. and and just shows up everywhere, particularly uh, in this era of slashers oh yeah lisa is putting lotion on her legs in a robe near the window and they remark that old man chatham major chatham stares at them through the window from across the street from his wheelchair we do see him looking through the window and lisa flashes him through the window and uh she says he ought to be able to stand up now which
2: is a cruel thing to say but really funny (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) it's a cruel thing in the disabled uh context but pretty funny in the peeper context yeah
0: yeah, I got I, I chuckled at that line. I mean, like you mentioned before, it's, there's some really pedestrian sort of flirty placeholder dialogue that made it into the final draft of of this script. That was a joke that I thought was pretty well like with the deodorant, no sweat one. They did yeah. that thing I hate, which was they they dragged the joke out for yeah. one frame too long. Like the he does, we don't need the do you get it? We only need Farley Granger's reaction and then a quick cut Don't cut back to him saying, do you get it? It's a joke. He made the joke. We all get it. He gets it. He rolls his eyes. Cut. Move on. Yeah. Uh, But this one, no, that was a funny, that was a funny line. I enjoyed it. Yeah.
1: Now we cut to the killer putting a knife in his boot and a bayonet in its sheath around his waist. And he loads a double barrel shotgun. Uh, We see shots of Pam getting ready and they are interspersed with shots of the killer getting ready. I thought that was pretty cool. They're like, she's getting ready for the dance. He's getting ready to go on a massacre.
0: (laughs) It's like the lowest level equivalent of like the end montage of the Godfather where the people are getting ready for the christening, but they're also getting ready to pull off the executions (laughs) at the same time. Yeah. Uh,
1: Pam offers to wait for Sherry friend who is in the shower but she says go ahead without her she's going to wait for her boyfriend Carl to pick her up so Pam heads out but she senses when she's outside that someone is watching her and uh, she bumps into some friends there's a jump scare including friends Lisa and Paul who are drinking on their way to go to the dance and they end up walking together now a figure enters the house where like the dorm it's a really massive like four or five story Home. Mm-hmm. Really beautiful. This film was shot in New Jersey, it takes place in California. Yeah. We get a POV shot straight out of Halloween going up the stairs. They sneak up to her transparent sliding glass doors. How she didn't see him coming, I don't know. He slides <laughs> them open and startles Sherry, and it turns out to be Carl, the boyfriend. And she tells him to take off his clothes and get in. So he heads to the bedroom and starts to undress. But he is grabbed from behind by the killer, smothering his mouth and nose. And uh, the killer plunges the bayonet down the top of his head and straight out the bottom of his mouth, like under his chin. And it's, as we talked about before, it doesn't cut away. We see the blood drizzle from the top of the head as Carl is still alive and kind of like trying to gurgle and make sounds. And then suddenly as the bayonet is starting to get pulled out of the head, his eyes roll back revealing just cloudy, like bright white bulbs and his mouth and jaw are still struggling as the bayonet is removed. It's just like mind blowing to me that we're cutting from what is obviously a prosthetic head. When I say obviously, it looks real as fuck. Yeah. But we're cutting between that and the real actor, and it's
2: seamless. It really is. It's, it's, this is one of those definite signature moments and like we said the uh, the eyes rolling back got an audible gasp out of me and that's pretty hard to do yeah. uh, uh with with me at this point with horror movies um but that really upset me i'm just like oh my god that's really shocking i mean we get kind of a couplet of arguably two of the best kills in the movie just right here in a row and it's just a real calling card kind of moment just like all right this is what you're in it, for. it is
0: because when you watch the bayonet one i think you watch it and go wow i can't believe they went there that's got to be sort of the money shot and that the, what how can they top that and they'll find a way yeah <laughs> somehow i mean they're they're all kind of, it's kind of like a three or four way tie for first when it comes yeah. to some of these kills but i think that it cuts then to um to back to the shower and it's like you're you're thinking okay well she's going to get killed now it can't possibly be as gruesome as what we just witnessed can it
1: it can he wipes, killer wipes, and um, it should be noted this killer wears green army fatigues, like from World War II, with a army helmet and then a mesh kind of camouflage mask over the face. Uh, so yeah. army green from head to toe, combat boots, the leather gloves, um, helmet, uh, and weaponry adorning all over. Uh, wipes the blood off the bayonet, which I only mentioned because it's such a, it's just an uneasy moment. Like it's just gross looking yeah he approaches the shower where sherry is waiting for carl and he slides the door open and then impales her with his pitchfork and it is brutal as the prongs slide into her torso and it just keeps going in and (laughs) in (laughs) he lifts her up against the wall uh, as she's screaming and bleeding in agony
2: just something about the way that it, it takes time for like this is not a Jason character. This is not right. a supernaturally strong person. This is taking the amount of effort it would likely take to stab somebody, and it's really upsetting, you know, and the fact that they take their time with it and really linger on it is uh just yeah, that's that's part of the power of it. Yeah well,
0: you're you're focusing on the pitchfork and the torso for so long, and then it has the little cherry on top of just the blood pouring out of the mouth mm-hmm. when it cuts to the mouth with her being held up which is just a, a again like a layer of it you're not expecting and so that part is kind of shocking too so not only the the fact that so much but I mean we know when we see people die in movies blood comes from the mouth typically but like this is uh a lot of blood, yeah. <laughs> blood coming from the mouth and it not the not the last time that we're gonna see that either I also want to comment on the nudity in this
1: sequence because it is not a gratuitous flash-up of her tits. It is uh, the the breasts are um, secondary to the action of what's happening, and I find that really interesting for an '80s slasher film. It almost and I'm not comparing this filmmaking to Hitchcock whatsoever, but if Hitchcock had made Psycho in 1981, I would imagine that's how he would utilize nudity in
2: the shower scene. Yeah, what's what's the movie? Is it Frenzy? Uh, one of the later uh, Hitchcock movies that is like a little gory or a little uh, a little edgier. Frenzy you know, is was...
0: excellent. I don't know if yeah. if you've ever seen it before. And it's the necktie like strangler. Yeah, and that that is a more explicitly gruesome movie than a lot of the earlier Hitchcocks because we were getting into the seventies and he finished up with a Family Plot,
1: which I just watched for the first time a few months ago with Karen Black.
0: Yeah not a favorite of mine but but an interesting one and it really it's an incredibly fascinating thought to me had hitchcock been slightly younger and had he continued making films into the 80s with the way that the way hollywood the whole system changed really during that time like what would he do like what, what what would he do to push the envelope in the 80s so that's a an interesting point i never really thought much about but i would i'm inclined to agree with you I think if Hitchcock were doing something like this, he would look for that little extra. Mm-hmm. And and we get that little extra here.
1: Yeah. Now we cut to, uh, with Sherry's dying screams, we cut to someone cutting a giant sheet cake at the dance. This dance is decorated with Pepto-Bismol pink. And that is the only color that they have chosen as a theme for this dance, uh, streamers and balloons. I read that it rained one night and the humidity in the air caused the Pepto-Bismol pink streamers to stain the walls of this venue. And so they had oh, to no. repaint. Yeah, they had to repaint uh, <laughs> after because there were streaks of just gross, like, like pink, just a bad color of pink.
2: Anyway. Yeah, that was, yeah, no, was a bad color scheme. <laughs> and Enough this about- is a, These prom scenes are where I was really missing, like, you know, where's the where where's the the wacky frat boy and his nerdy friend who's trying sure. to get laid? Like, where's the where's the punk rock girl who keeps like the hairspraying her hair and has a this... switchblade in her boot? Like, I, I want some characters here.
1: I like to oh, point you're... out every time I do a movie from this era, particularly, is that those tropes had not been decided upon yet. And that's what I kind it's of true. Yeah. Love about this is that they, they haven't figured out how to make quote what we know as a slasher movie yet and so right. they're a little less ex- like unexpected
0: no it's just a bunch of drunk guys leaning on a urinal while one yeah. guy pukes and another guy takes a shit next to him
2: the, <laughs> yeah exactly Whackly the fun. two
0: guys looking at the same urinal I didn't <laughs> know what to do with that
1: yeah. Um. I will. I, I have to point out that the band playing this party is called Nowhere Fast, and I listened to a couple podcast episodes about this film, and there are mixed reviews of the quality of music with which this band produces. And I am on the side of a, they have no business playing a dance, and B, uh, they get way too much time uh, and coverage in this film,
2: and I want less of their music in my ear holes. <laughs> Yeah, let me I, I ask you. Were, I think the band name was uh, kind of a, a self fulfilling prophecy on that.
0: Yeah, one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rick, let me ask you. Where does this rank? Where does the this band rank in t- uh, comparison to the the bands in New Year's Evil?
1: So we just, I just did an episode on New Year's Evil. That, I know that's Shadow what the <laughs> band. I would one hundred percent go to a Shadow show from New Year's Evil, and, yeah, and the I would song ne-
0: New Year's Evil is a banger.
2: Yeah, you oh, couldn't yeah. all pay, the music in that movie. is
1: crazy. You couldn't yeah. pay me to go see this band in the Prowl. <laughs> No way, no way. Now, Deputy London arrives at the dance. Pam's working the punch table, but he's pulled aside by Lisa to dance. And he kind of shrugs Pam's way and is like, I guess this will dance with her. He looks like he's not into it at first, but then he's having fun. And he finally heads over to Pam, grabs some punch, and then Lisa bumps into him on purpose and spills the punch all over Lisa's dress. Being a gay man, I just have to take a moment and talk about pam's outfits in this because <laughs> this first dress reminds me of like rainbow sherbert with sequins and <laughs> i want to hate it and i just can't it, it's like a ballerina barbie dress and then she later changes into what should be a cuter blue dress and just seems frumpy and inappropriate but that's all i'm going to say about the costuming in this film
2: the blue dress was more like bridesmaid yeah yeah i like felt, like, felt like that that's what it looked like to me
1: yeah it's not a it's not like a a, a dance dress
0: yeah. yeah yeah you can see why lisa comes in like uh she comes in like the cha-cha to london's danny Zuko. yes and, and pulls him away uh and, and and you can see why because yeah. you know he's got he's got to choose between like slutty lisa or frumpy pam yeah
1: well deputy london i figured it out halfway through he looks like a hand like a handsome christopher walken like he has christopher walken's features, he does look like walken but yeah. like enhanced into uh, morphed into like, if Christopher, Christopher Walken, like when he was young, wasn't bad looking, but I don't know. That's this is
2: this is soap opera walking. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, Pam goes uh, What's that app that if he's been face tuned a little bit? Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. (laughs)
0: uh
1: Pam heads back to change her dress and she's super mad. She goes upstairs and here's the shower running, assuming that Sherry's still in there, which she is. And she closes Mm. the bathroom door. Uh, which does creak back open behind her. We do see that Sherry is dead in the shower. The killer's gloved hand places a red rose over her face. Now, Pam changes into this blue dress, does not no- notice Carl's blood on the bed sheets. grabs her purse and heads downstairs. But she hears the floorboards above her creaking and then sees this killer at the top of the stairs. She runs down the stairs, banging on doors and calling uh, for help. And all the doors are locked, literally All the doors are locked. Every single door is locked. Um, She bangs on a screen door and can't get out of a screen door. It's too much for me. Finds a door that has like a hook latch and finally gets out. I do think that it's a well-filmed chase scene.
2: Yeah.
0: I like the framing of the prowler coming down the stairs. It's Mm -hmm. sort of like the camera is sideways and it almost gives you a little bit of a disorienting MC Escher kind of feel to it which i which i appreciate um it doesn't uh it doesn't go on for too long yeah which i like i think there's a couple of cuts of her going down some various hallways and um a couple of good shots of of him stalking and so i think as a as a chase sequence i think it's 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 not bad uh i i i always hold these sequences up to like in the one with the good the the bitchy girl Wendy in prom night. Oh yeah, when sure. she goes through the school. Yeah, which I find to be like one is one of my favorite chase scenes in a slasher movie. In in an otherwise average slasher movie, I think yeah. that scene elevates it. And and here I think this is um uh, a passable a passable one.
1: Now she runs outside and is grabbed by Major Chatham in his wheelchair and he won't let her go. He's wearing black leather gloves. She's begging to let him go. She finally gets away when her dress rips and she keeps running and bumps into London. And she tells him someone was chasing her and Major Chatham grabbed her. London takes a look around while Pam waits in the Jeep, in the like sheriff's Jeep. And we see the killer's boots as he hides, but London, uh, the sequence takes too long. It's just too much of London crouching around with a flashlight Uh, this movie is about an hour and a half it could be an hour 20 if they cut some of this stuff (laughs) and a strong hour 20
2: yeah no i i was i was struggling a bit with these two because i think you know obviously the intention is to uh build tension and build stakes and things like that but Mm. i i felt felt plotting and it felt like it just went on too long yeah and there are too many scenes like that there's a few scenes like that where it's just slowly wandering through the hotel it just feels like they're trying to pad out the reels
1: The score is doing something for me. It's just what's happening on screen is not as interesting as the score. Yeah. Now, Pam is startled by London when he opens the Jeep door. He says that he found wheelchair marks and boot tracks, but that's it. And Pam tells him that Sherry's still inside with Carl. So Landon goes inside to find them. We see that they are inside the shower. Sherry's laid down on in the tub and Carl is hanging from the shower head by his necktie. It's a really good straight down shot at them. But mm-hmm. London doesn't go into the room. He just hears the shower and then turns around and goes back out, uh, gets in the car and they drive to Major Chatham's house, but he doesn't answer the door. They go in the back entrance into the dark house. There's music and tension, but again, this goes on for way too long. Like, what are we supposed to be afraid of here? Yeah, You know, just a dark house? That's not enough for me.
2: Right. Yeah, we at least need to be cutting to like, you know, there's some boots or there's some, you know, there's there's some shuffling curtains or something, yeah. you know.
1: They split up and uh, London keeps looking and Pam finds a box of old black and white pictures and a photo album with a rose pressed inside and there's a picture of a woman, a young girl named Frances Rosemary Chatham. This is the girl who was killed in the opening sequence. London returns and Pam explains that she has figured out that Frances Rosemary Chatham, the major's daughter, was the one who was killed 35 years ago and that they never found the killer. It must've been someone who knew she was called Rose. The killer could still be around. I think for me, I thought that we were already supposed to know all of that.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that early. Yeah, that's always an annoying part of movies where it's like they need to explain to the characters the things that we've known already this whole time. You know, it's always just kind of like, yeah, all right, right, let's get to it.
1: London tells her that the guy who chased her, maybe the person that the state police are looking for right now, suggests that they just go to the dance and tell everyone to stay inside. She suggests calling the sheriff and London gets his feelings hurt. (laughs) He's supposed to be able to handle
2: anything. Gets a big sad.
1: Yeah. Back at the dance, Paul is puking in the bathroom. We get more coverage of this terrible band playing than we need. And Lisa enters the men's room to find Paul. She angrily tells him that she's going to cool off for a bit. When he gets tired of hugging the toilet, he can find her at the pool and she leaves which to me is the worst possible justification of having a woman jump. Like she's going swimming when she is made up for a dance, like hair and makeup, just thrown
0: to the wind.
2: Yeah. She put effort into that. Like there's still an evening ahead of her, you know? Nope. She needs to, she needs to cool off.
0: Well, she's, you know, she's getting mad at Paul. She's, she's overheating. She needs to cool off. Literally. I I got actress Cindy weintraub who plays lisa in the movie uh i don't know if you're familiar she's also in the movie um humanoids from the deep oh yeah right so she has not had a lot of luck around water and (laughs) yeah surrounding areas
2: yeah yeah things go bad for her there definitely for sure
0: uh she does
2: leave before
1: an announcement is made on stage that a prowler has been seen around the campus. Uh, that's why the movie's called The Prowler. And that could be dangerous. Everyone is asked to stay inside. No one can leave the dance. Lisa's friends talk about Lisa leaving, and they decide, now nah, she's probably okay. Yeah. <laughs> A chaperone gets Paul, drunk Paul, kicked out of the dance, despite the announcement that they just made that no one can leave. And uh, Deputy London escorts him out. Yeah,
0: you can't leave by your own volition, but you no. can get escorted out. Escorted <laughs> yeah, out by an authority, you're
2: in a, a, unfit state to defend yourself. Yes, right. that's fine. Let's throw you outside. We cut to Lisa diving
1: into the swimming pool in her underwear. She's swimming around. It's it's a pretty well-shot pool sequence. I love the underwater stuff. I love the lighting in this scene. I think it's really well done. When she starts to climb out the ladder to get out of the pool, she's fucking kicked in the face by a combat boot and falls back in. And I did not see that coming.
2: That was a really upsetting kick. It's so it's it's some there's something so dehumanizing about that. Something kind of humiliating. Yeah, it's not a fatal blow. It's just, you know, it's dismissive almost. yeah, Yeah, it was gross.
0: Yeah. And it's crazy, too, because like a lot of times people will act a certain way in a horror movie and you'll kind of criticize the actions that people take like oh why is this person flailing around like crazy why is this person tripping and falling all the time she flails around in the pool a little bit but i was like that would happen because yeah. if he kicked her between the eyes like that she's gonna be really disoriented for a second and like she's not right by the ladder anymore and it's like it it it, it, it goes on for maybe like 30 seconds of her kind of just flailing. But I'm Mm -hmm. like, that makes complete sense. All the blood probably rushed up to her head. Like she, I was like, I I can forgive that. This seems uh, somewhat realistic. Yeah. And also buys some time for the prowler to, to make his way into the pool. (laughs)
1: which he does first off they filmed this movie in late uh late autumn early winter in new jersey and so this poor girl had to be in a swimming pool in the freezing cold and the kicking scene was done with a rubber leg so she wasn't actually getting kicked by a combat boot but apparently she did get hurt at one point and someone finally told the director like We've got it. We have to move on. Stop doing this to this poor woman. Yeah. As you mentioned, she is flailing with enough time for the killer to somehow. And for some reason, end up in the pool behind her. So as she tries to climb out again, he grabs her from behind. It actually is a good jump scare. Like this one is earned in my opinion. Mm -hmm. He slices her neck with his bayonet and kind of saws into it a little bit. It looks so good and we get those underwater shots of her legs kicking in front of the pool light after she's been killed there's like one more kick with the pluck of a string on the score and it's just like yeah ugh, gross and then the gorgeous shot of her underwater you see the sliced neck you see it kind of flapping around and the blood gushing like just pouring gushing out of it that's mixing with this blue tinted water it's really beautiful
2: yeah. Oh, it really is.
0: And when they show it from under the water too, and it's yeah. kind of backlit by the pool light, yep. and, it, and it gives it like a pinkish hue, it looks really
2: great. And just the how deep that blade gets in her throat <laughs> upsets me. It's yeah. So it.
1: I, I. I rewound it. I couldn't fathom how the neck appliance looked so good. Yeah. You know, it just it just looks like her neck. It. Uh, I. I'm blown away. Now we see Sally and Ben, two other inconsequential friends of hers, sneak down to the basement of the dance venue to fool around. And the killer sneaks up on them. And then that's the last that we see of them. Am I wrong? We never see them again.
2: I don't think so. I'll defer to Jared on that, yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't think so. We don't see them get killed. We don't see them like reappear. I feel like something was cut either from the script or the film but it it just kind of confused me because I kept waiting to see their death scene that never happened. A chaperone from the dance goes looking for Lisa and finds her clothes by the pool and blood in the swimming pool, which also looks really cool. Yeah, She runs, but is grabbed from behind a fence and the killer jams his bayonet into her throat, like reaches around her and then jams it into her throat. Quicker than the rest of the kills, but what works for me most on this one is the blood dripping on her feet yeah
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well i almost feel like that was a, a creative choice too because it's like let's let's keep the stakes high like let's keep the gore high but we don't want such another visually unpleasant death to follow the other one so quickly i think i think they made i think they made the choice like they probably could have shown us the slice and the prosthesis but i think they wanted to give you, uh, they wanted you to have a little bit of a rest from just how graphic the the yeah. death right before it was. Now, Kingsley, that store clerk who made the, the deodorant joke before,
1: confronts Pam in London about a bunch of kids that are misbehaving in the cemetery. He says there hasn't been any trouble on this campus in 30 years until they started having a dance again. And he's weird and creepy, maybe drunk. I don't know. And Pam wonders what he was doing wandering around by the cemetery. They drive to the cemetery. London leaves Pam in the Jeep and starts looking around. This is aimless wandering, but good score again. And a POV shot is following him, but it's not a person following him. Which throws me off. Anyway, he comes across an open grave and the casket inside has been opened. Uh, He climbs in to investigate as Pam is hearing footsteps while she's sitting in the Jeep. Turns out to be Otto, the mentally challenged brother of the clerk, looking in the window. So London runs to her and then he brings her back to the open grave. This movie has so much back and forth to locations. uh, Yeah.
0: Back to punctuate that point. It's like I, when, when we were talking about this, the scene of them kind of meandering earlier in my brain, I equated that with the same scene with Otto and and the open grave and they're not. And it's like, if I'm confusing them, then we're going back to this too often.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: London opens the he, so he climbs into the grave. He opens the casket and we see Lisa's dead body with her throat slit and she's holding a red rose in her hands. London sees that there's no name on the grave, but there is a rose carved into it. London calls to get a hold of the sheriff, and this scene is mind-blowingly impossibly pointless as well. The guy who runs the place where the sheriff is supposed to be staying fishing, talks slow, moves slow, tells him, yeah, sure, I'll go try to find the sheriff in his cabin, and then just sits and plays solitaire and snacks for a good 45 seconds to one
2: minute. <laughs> yeah.
1: Before returning to the phone and telling him that he can't find the sheriff.
2: Like it's infuriating to me. I'm wondering if he was just, I don't know, maybe he was like a stand-up comedian or something or or you know he has that um, vibe. Some- some buddy of the uh, director like i think he felt like he was gonna pop off of this little uh comedic side bit but yeah Yeah. i I agree it's just like painfully slow it's just like all right come on just just
0: yeah he's supposed to be there for some comic relief it just doesn't really land
2: not at all not at all
1: london calls the state police and he's told that they'll be there in less than a half an hour to help they caught the man who robbed the store and stabbed that guy and stole his car, so it can't be him doing these killings. Pam deduces that that grave probably belonged to Rose Chatham, duh, and that the man who killed her also killed Lisa. London and Pam have a dumb argument where he tries to convince her he's going to Chatham's house alone and she should stay at the dance, and she says, fine, you just go play sheriff,
0: and hurts his feelings again. (laughs) I love what gradual, so yeah, yeah, it's a, it, that was a really fun, like uh soap, soap opera-y sitcom line delivery. Well, she gets out of the Jeep and he's
1: like, okay, bye, I'm leaving you. And, and then it's, it's just, she gets back in, uh, <sighs> uh, the, they drive back to Chatham's house so much back and forth and they head in. And this time London is armed with a shotgun, now he heads upstairs and Pam looks around downstairs. And Again, long shots, spooky music. Um, This might work a little better for me, I think, than the other sequences like this because the stakes are now higher. Yeah. Um, but it still feels like a lot of padding. The killer is seen pulling his bayonet out of his sheath and it looks like he has the intention of using it. Pam slowly approaches the fireplace as the lights go out. London starts to go down to check the fuse, uh, but is attacked by the killer, knocked out and dragged away, leaving his shotgun on the floor. The killer picks up his pitchfork, and as he picks it up, it kind of lifts over London's head, and you don't really know if he kills London or not. Cut to the lights coming back up on Pam. She sees a red rose over the photo album sitting on the mantle under a picture of Rose. And she kneels down at the fireplace and sees a gold heart-shaped locket dangling inside the fireplace she reaches up and feels around and then rose's rotted corpse skeleton falls down the
0: chimney Hmm. which i find to be a a pretty effective jump scare Yeah. yeah like i think it's pretty well it's pretty well staged
1: not expecting it i do it raises the question why was rose's corpse placed in
2: the chimney Right. Yeah. I think it would have been distractingly stinky for a couple of years there. Yeah. And difficult to do. <laughs> and uh, just. Also, you're just costing yourself a good fireplace. I mean, wait, yeah. you're, you're just never going to be able to use your fireplace.
1: The fireplace was a facade. Uh, it was not yeah. part of the actual house so that they could rig this.
0: Listen, what what you guys don't understand is that if you exhume this corpse and you stage it this way in in, in such an implausible way, but the person that you didn't anticipate to be prowling and hunting happens to stumble upon the necklace that you left dangling, and they pull it, and that corpse falls at the perfect angle. It's going to pay off. Yeah, yeah, it's going to it's going to pay off. Like you're right.
1: I take I retract yes. my
0: statement. Thank
1: you. Yeah. <laughs> now the killer is seen behind Pam, and he holds out a rose, and he says, "I'm here for our date, Rose." <laughs> and Pam runs and hides. Uh, this I do like. A lot of this chase scene, a lot of the hiding, it feels redundant. It maybe goes on for, it does go on for too long, but I think it's well shot.
2: But the struggle is intense. Like yeah. I, I think the struggle between her and this guy mm-hmm. does feel like a a good like life or death kind of struggle here.
1: Yeah, it really does. At a point, she's behind a door and is able to break peace, like the break the pitchfork in half, basically, and she has the pitchfork end of it. And as he busts through and you think he's gonna get her, he is shot by a shotgun and it is Otto, like the the mentally challenged man who has shot him and he's banged up against a wall. And then we get this like the too long of a sequence of Pam so and Otto long.
2: looking at each other like sweetly. <laughs> <laughs> like you know it's like you you know this isn't just gonna stand because they're taking so long with it and she's looking at him with like almost romantic longing or something I don't know it's it's hard to interpret what she's thinking while she's looking at this guy yeah and flowery what I like flowery about it, music
0: what I like about it though is that we all know that he's gonna pop back up you see they cut back to him the head uh, cocking up a little bit but then what I love so much is that they uh, correctly assume that the majority of the audience forgot that this guy has a shotgun, (laughs) right? And so you think he's going to pop up and throw his hands up in the air and go, ah, or he's going to like pull, you know, pull a knife or pull the pitchfork out of his back or something like that and and plunge it into somebody's leg or something. No, he just full blown double barrel shotguns when he sits up and it's great. Yeah. Yeah
1: and blasts Otto against the wall and there is blood everywhere. Pam Uh. jams the pitchfork, her end of the pitchfork into the killer's back and leaps for the shotgun and yeah, they wrestle, they struggle. It's cool to see a final girl like this get something to do and put up a fight, you know? Yeah. It's a good moment. Now the killer starts to cough Mm -hmm. and then removes his mask and uh, we see it is revealed that it is Sheriff Fraser
2: oh no, I didn't see that coming. (laughs) No, how could we have guessed?
1: Can I tell you the first time I watched it, uh, you know, a few days ago, I had forgotten who, like I didn't recognize who this character was. I had forgotten that there was a sheriff in this movie at all.
2: Yeah, I think they needed to have her like yell, the sheriff, oh, you're the sheriff. Because if she didn't do that, I would be like, who the fuck is this guy? Yes,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, it's very much like Roy in Friday the 13th. I was just thinking. When you see see Roy Roy fall on the spikes, the the latex mask that he was wearing under the hockey mask rips open and you see his face but you don't you don't see all of his face and there's like rain beating down on him and there's a good like 10 seconds where i feel like everyone who watches that movie for the first time goes who is that who the fuck yeah yeah Yeah. oh for sure and it's the same thing here. So they're
1: fighting. They're still struggling. The he has the shotgun in his hands. She finagles it to rest underneath his chin and she pulls the trigger and blows his head to smithereens and it's Oof. glorious.
2: What a good head explosion. And it's so brief. It's like half a second long. Yeah. You can see enough of it to get the detail of it, but you can tell they were on a strict leash about what they how much of this they could show. Yes. Is this the same year as Scanners? Or is Scanners same year. year same is it year. really? So this is a great year for exploding heads. In for movies. head trauma. <laughs> uh, between those two, like this is a great year for that. I know.
0: And then uh, Tom Savini himself, his head blowing up like a melon Maniac, was only probably about nine months earlier. Yeah, because right. that was nineteen eighty. Okay.
2: He
1: and then he had a. He, Tom Savini also had a great head explosion in Dawn of the Dead.
2: Oh, he did. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Great. Yeah. And yeah. and I don't know if you guys have seen this movie, but there's a, a great. A great head explosion I, I believe it's it's kirk douglas if i'm not mistaken i could be confusing the two characters in the movie and brian de palma's the fury okay uh, and oh yeah. A, a, yeah Amy yeah. irving is like a telekinetic who makes his head explode. i love that movie and it's uh it's awesome too yeah. this is a great head explosion this one ranks right up there with scanners right up there with the maniac i mean i i love just like a uh, full on like melon explosion <laughs> like you, I mean, like you get for this one
2: we i'm sure you've gotten to it in other uh, Savini episodes but this is one that really drove it home for me you know the, Savini is a veteran you know Savini mm-hmm. fought was on the ground in Vietnam he yes. saw a lot of carnage and he's talked a lot about how his special effects makeup has kind of been a way for him to process some of the things that he saw yeah and with the military motif in this movie i just couldn't help but think that he's really working through something with this movie uh because he's going so far so far and like putting in so much work into these effects uh it it, fe- it feels like it's a movie that struck a chord with him for some reason
1: i had not even considered that he had been to war i knew that he had but yeah that connection is super super valid and super apparent uh, I did read it, it's his hands that pull the trigger on the shotgun. It was a real shotgun mm. that they used. And apparently it only exploded half of the head, but it must've been the front half because it
2: looks pretty destroyed. <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe that's why they yeah. cut away so quick, but yeah, maybe it good. Yeah. What they had looked good.
0: I'm going to correct hmm. myself before people fire off these angry tweets at me. It, it was not, it was John Cassavetes head who I believe explodes in the fury. That, okay. uh, Amy Irving explodes, not Kirk Douglas, although Kirk Douglas is in that movie as yeah. well.
1: Okay. I keep wanting to do an episode on that and none of my guests have seen it, but um, one day, one day I'll get to it. So we cut to the next morning and London and Pam are driving to the dorm again, back and forth to locations. Uh, He tells Pam to go upstairs while he talks to the state police who are finally arriving. Pam still has blood splattered all over her from three people getting shot (laughs) with shotguns. And she walks upstairs and finds that the shower is still running. And we have flowery, you know, um, inspirational kind of, oh, everything's finished music playing as she approaches the bathroom and then the shower, which she slides open and she finds Carl and Cheryl's bodies in the shower. Carl is, again, hanging from the showerhead by his necktie. His eyes are white and bulging. And then he suddenly reaches for her and grabs Pam, and she starts screaming and she backs away and then covers her face with her eyes and then comes to realize that that was just a hallucination. As Carl's corpse still hangs lifelessly in the shower, and we fade yeah, to black. and we
0: realize that Joseph Zito has seen both Carrie and Dress to Kill,
2: and Friday the Thirteenth, and Friday the Thirteenth, and Friday the Thirteenth, yeah. 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 Yeah, um, it feels really tacked on and like uh, kind of like a, a limp way to end the movie. Like it probably would, I would have liked if they just ended the movie on the head exploding. Yeah. You know, just like uh, freeze frame roll credits over that exploding head. But I don't you know.
1: care enough about the characters to see what happens to them after that. Like, that's enough no. for me
2: yeah no yeah sleepaway
0: camp knew how to do it right man that credit sequence just freeze frames on fullissa rose's face and that's it that's all we need i don't (laughs) need yeah that's it
1: everyone's going to therapy for the rest of their lives (laughs) (laughs) and angelo will return uh yeah played by bruce springsteen's sister so um we fade to black credits roll uh it's the same flowery music which is a little i don't know what i would have preferred
0: but um not that yeah.
2: And that's the end of the movie. <laughs> we prowled.
0: We, we, we successfully prowled.
1: Uh Fellas, on Rick or HorrorCast, there's a rating system. A movie is either a trick, which means it's okay. It is a treat, which means you love it. Or it is a smell my feet, which means it sucks.
2: Steve, how do you rate it? I am going to give this a trick uh, because I think... As a movie, generally, it's pretty weak. we've we've kind of gone over like the plot doesn't really matter. The characters don't really matter, but uh these visual effects really need to be seen to be believed. Mm. Uh, they really do. they they st- they hold up after more than 40 years at this point. Uh, and they feel really visceral and really personal. and uh, I, I think that's kind of the reason to watch this movie. Yeah, yeah. Jared, what about you?
0: So I'm gonna echo everything that Steve said about the effects, but I'm going to call this a treat. Um, I, I like this movie a lot. I recognize there are problems with the narrative problems with pacing, but I think the, the effects, the kill scenes are so visceral that it, it it makes up for it. And what I like about this movie is also what I like about my bloody Valentine is that there's an ambition here to make this stand out from the pack of all of the sort of nondescript slashers that were being made at the time. So the fact that they try to pull off this period detail, the fact that they try to have a generational story and have it be more than just uh, a bunch of kids get together and, and get picked off. I know obviously the the story is thin, but I, I like the fact that they try it. And I think that Joseph Zito, who he was a, a theater actor, I'm sorry, theater director, I should say, before this. And this was an early film for him to make, and he was still kind of learning Mm. as he went along. And I think he has a pretty sure handed grasp on this. And I think he, you know, he he was someone who sought to make something that had a little bit more meat than than some of the the other genre movies that were were coming out at the time, and I I feel like he brought that to Friday the Thirteenth Four too. I know we mentioned before about the the actress who played Lisa having to be outside in the freezing cold, and him wanting to continuously you know do more takes and stuff like that. And that was the impression I got of him that he was really tough. On the, on the cast in Friday four as well. The same thing
1: happened with the, yeah. the character
0: who's in the raft. Judy Aronson. And, and uh, it was the actor who plays Jason.
1: Jason spoke up. Ted White. Yeah. yeah. Actor who played Jason spoke up and was like, enough is enough, dude. Like she's had enough. Right. Let's move on.
0: Yeah. So he took this really seriously and I think he did set out to make a good horror movie. Mm-hmm. And I think it's for the most part because of some well- directed and staged jump scares and just out of this world, gore gore uh, kill effects. I think he succeeded. So I, I, I rate this one pretty high. Uh, I, I think when I, when people ask me to recommend slasher movies to them, this one usually falls. If they said, give me a list of your 10 favorites. I mean, this, this one might pop up on there. And like Steve said, only because the gore, the, the effects need to be seen to be believed.
1: Yeah. I, um agree with everything that you all just said. I struggled where to place this trick or treat, trick or treat, uh, and went back and forth, even during the course of recording this episode, back and forth, where do I place this? I am landing on a trick. It is a high, the high end of being a trick. Trick isn't a bad thing. There are no. more tricks than there are treats or smell my feet in the world, right? Yeah, hey, sure. The film, for me, the the performances are not as bad you know i think that it, the script is what really i struggle with in this film i think that the story there's not enough of it there i think
2: mm-hmm. if it had
1: gotten a couple more passes maybe built something up focused a little bit more on the lore and the history of this you know murder that happened 35 yeah. years ago give me more of right. that and and touch on the ptsd of this veteran you know touch on the fact that he's yeah. a jilted lover we don't we don't we don't head in that direction very very much the film yeah is made by the kills. And for that reason, I recommend everybody watch this film. It's not that it's unwatchable. It's very watchable. No, I will watch it again someday happily. And I will very happily recommend it and show it to others. And uh, and
2: maybe a couple of moments you can fast forward through.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And you'll know when you get to them. Mm -hmm. I can't I'm actually really grateful that the two of you recommended this one to me. And I'm really glad that it worked out, that it was one that I was excited about and really enjoyed. So thank you for bringing this into my life. Absolutely.
0: I'm glad to hear it, Ricky. I was thinking, I was hoping that that was the reaction you were going to have. I was hoping that you were going to get to these gore scenes and be like, holy shit. And then that would, you know, come out when you talked about it. And it did. So I, I'm I'm glad because that was the what I was hoping for. And I got it. So you you don't have to thank me i'm, I'm so glad <laughs> that you now are familiar with this movie and that you you now can say to other people you, you can say with confidence to other people like oh shit you remember that pool scene in the prowler yeah that-
1: <laughs> yeah and now i'll know for
0: sure hey
1: guys i can't thank you enough for being on my podcast oh it's been a pleasure tell my listeners where they can stalk you
0: All right. So if you have enjoyed listening to us and our input on this show, you can check out our show, Puppet Masters Castle Freaks. Uh, We drop new episodes every Friday on any podcast catcher that you use. Uh, We're also on YouTube. Uh, We have social media on Instagram. You can follow the show at puppetmasters underscore castle freaks. You can follow me at, uh, at underscore Jallo underscore jerry or steve at minotaur matador um and we're on x and blue sky and threads and so if you if you want to you know subscribe to the show and follow any of our socials we're very easily accessible uh i do all of my podcasting on that show Steve does not. Steve, where else can people find you? Yeah, I
2: have another show called Uh So for people who are uh, video game fans out there, that's a show where we watch a movie and then we play the video game based off of that movie. To see how they uh, compare and contrast, and uh, how they enhance or detract from the experience of one another, I've been having a lot of fun with that, and got about yeah, we got uh, a good amount of content out there for that show. So definitely check that one out uh, in all the same places.
1: That's such a great premise for a podcast. I got you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we're having fun.
2: We're lots of movies that you wouldn't expect
1: good cool uh well you can follow the podcast my podcast rick or treat horror on all platforms at rick or treat pod and youtube um at rick or treat Horrorcast. but i'm really grateful to everyone for listening and i am so grateful to jared and to steve for taking the time to be on the show i really do adore you guys and i love your show and um and i can't oh, recommend thanks, it man. yeah i can't recommend well, we, it enough all right guys you're welcome short. back anytime and oh, thanks um, so yay. much. we'll see y'all later spookies so long. Thanks for coming Ricker Treating. It'd be a real scream if you'd take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever platform you're listening on. The show's spooky intro and outro music is a cover of Camille saint Sans's Danse Macabre with orchestrations composed and performed by Lestat von Monlicht. My website, Rickertreat.com, is designed and maintained by Evelyn DeVere. The show's social media content is created by my evil minion and social media manager Stanley Martin. The Rick or Treat logo was designed by Philip Romano. Contact information and links to these artists can be found in the episode description. Check them out—they're frighteningly talented. Rick or Treat Horrorcast is independently produced by me, Ricky J. Duarte of Rick or Treat Productions. If you like what you heard, tell a fiend—I mean, friend. If you didn't, well, they're coming to get you, listener. <laughs>